So before we start, I really just want to thank Pastor Scott, who I assume will hear a recording of this message, for letting me preach while he is away. I think it's a very gracious thing that he would um, give up his pulpit and spend so much time training me in order to be able to preach to you today. I also want to thank everyone here who is listening. Um, yeah, thank you for being here to come listen to me. It's, it's awesome. So I'm going off, well, I've got this here, but I'm going off script. This is kind of an introduction to the introduction to the introduction that I'm going to give. Um, but I hopefully this will encourage you. Um, while I was preparing this message, I did struggle a lot with unbelief. I was anxious about how this would turn out and that because of that, I was procrastinating and I was getting more and more anxious as, as I was avoiding my responsibility and just making my self feel worse and worse as the date drew closer. Um, but then I was thinking about this yesterday and I just realized that in all of this, I wasn't trusting God. Um, when it comes down to it, this is God's message, not mine. And it just really isn't about me. Um, so yeah, God has a message from his inspired word and he wants me to proclaim it to you today. Um, he is the sovereign king who brought all of reality into existence and continues to uphold it today, and I'm just his messenger. So in light of this, I want to pray for you all today. Dear God, I want to thank you that our pastor can go and help John and Rosemary train other pastors and leaders over in Vanuatu. Thank you for the ministry of Crossing Cultures International and how through their work, thousands of leaders from all over the world have been equipped to serve in their churches and train others. Thank you for everyone here today. Thank you for the faithful members of Good News Baptist, the faithful attendees who come here week after week to hear from your word and to encourage and exhort each other. And I just want to pray that you would help us to be passionately and faithfully committed to the proclamation of your gospel. Please let us be of one mind in this. I also pray that you would encourage and exhort us with the words that we hear today and that above all else that you would be glorified. So, amen. Today I will be starting a sermon series on the book of Philippians, which I have entitled The Advance of the Gospel. And I'll get into the name next message because next message involves that very verse which talks about the advance of the gospel. So the first message will come from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. But first we're going to look at Acts 16. So yeah. This will be some introductory information, and Acts 16 goes over when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke started the church in Philippi. So, Acts 16, chapter 6. And they, that's Paul, Silas, probably Timothy, went through the region of Phygria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So... Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he took them the same hour of that night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So yeah, this is introducing the book. We just looked at when Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke started this church. So when was the church started? The events took place during Paul's second missionary trip which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, to chapter 18, verse 22. It happened around 49 to 51 AD, so about 20 years after Christ's death, um, actually a few less, 
And Philippi was the first city where we have narrative as the preceding places are just mentioned in passing in this missionary journey. Um, Paul was writing, so Paul was now writing this letter to the church in Philippi during his Roman imprisonment, approximately 10 years after starting the church. It was around 62 AD, and this was one of Paul's four prison epistles, which he wrote from Rome. So where was Philippi? Philippi was a Roman colony named after King Philip of Macedon in the region of Macedonia, on the mainland of Greece. And although the borders have changed, Macedonia is still a region of Greece, and if the Philippian city still existed, it would be there today. So in who, who was there when the church was started? Firstly, we have the Philippian population. It was mainly Gentile and a Roman colony. They were pagans because Paul cast out a fortune teller girl who was possessed by a demon, and she had owners who were really enjoying the money that she made for them. So they were pagans. They had Roman magistrates as leaders. It was almost like a small Rome, smaller version of Rome. It, there were only a few Jews, because as we see when Paul first talked to Lydia, that there was no synagogue, so he had to go out to, the la- uh, out to a river where people were praying. So yeah, there were so few Jewish men that there wasn't enough even for a synagogue. And who started this church? It was Paul and Silas, as we see in Acts 15.40. They were the people who started the church in Philippi. Timothy was probably with them, because in Acts 16, 1 through 5, Paul sees Timothy and decides he wants to take him, and so he does, and it says nothing about Timothy leaving. And Luke was probably with them as well, because in verses 10 or 11 of chapter 16, it starts use, he starts using inclusive pronouns like us or we. So Luke's probably with him as well. And then I want to mention some notable conversions that happened in this story. So first we have Lydia in verses 13 through 15. She was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple, which meant she was a businesswoman. And she was a God-fearer, which meant she was a Gentile who had become a partial adherent to Judaism. And she probably allowed to be um, the church to be started in her house after her baptism, after her and her whole household believed and were baptized. Another important person was the Philippian jailer in verses 27 to 34. He was a Roman. He nearly killed himself after the perceived prisoner escape, and upon hearing that the prisoners had not escaped after the miraculous earthquake, he asked how to be saved. He was baptized with his entire family, and during the night he looked after Paul and Silas. He gave them food and tended to their wounds. I think it's probably also safe to say that the demon-possessed girl also came to Christ um, after you know having a demon cast out of her. And maybe even a number of the people in the prisoners, a number of the prisoners who saw what happened also accepted Christ and became part of this church. So these are the people 10 years later who Paul was writing to. And lastly, I just want to give you what I think is Paul's purpose for writing this book. I got this from the John MacArthur Study Bible, and if you don't have one, you should totally get one. Um, yeah, I was, when I was studying this passage, like out of, if I could just have one of the tools that I'd use, it would be that study Bible. That was amazing. Um, anyway, so I have five purposes for Paul writing this book. One, to express his thanks for the Philippians' gift, which we see in Philippians 4, 10 through 18. 
the Philippians had a long-term partnership with Paul that we will learn about in our passage today. This letter was a response to the gift Epaphroditus, a leader in the Philippian church, had delivered to Paul in prison, and on his way back, Paul sent this letter with him to, to the Philippian church. Number two, to let the Philippians know why Paul returned Epaphroditus to them, so that they would not think that his service to Paul had been unsatisfactory. Paul knew the Philippians were quite worried after learning Epaphroditus was sick and nearly died, and so he thought it would be better to return him to them, him to them. Number three, to inform the Philippian believers about his circumstances in Rome, the Philippians were probably worried about Paul after hearing that he was in prison. Number four, to exhort them to unity. And number five, to warn them against false teachers. And this passage, its main focus is of these purposes is on the first one, in writing of thanks for the Philippians' gift. So... Yeah, this message will focus on the first purpose. When I was studying this passage, I used a series of questions as I was observing the text that you might have heard of. Who, what, why, when, where, and how. And then when I was outlining this passage, I thought, hey, let's just continue to try answer these questions whenever they come up in the book. If there's a who question, I'll answer it. If there's a why question, I'll answer it. So in all of my subpoints, I've attempted to answer these questions as they presented themselves. So, if you'd please turn to Philippians 1, 1 through 11, we'll read it together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so sorry, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise of God. So in my sermon I have three main points. The first one is the last introduction you'll get. So this is the, the third one that I'll have given. Then I have two other main points, which are praise and prayer. And sorry, the first point introduction, I couldn't get it as a P. I know pastors love to alliterate, but I haven't yet discovered that skill. I was thinking of something like preceding introduction or preceding greeting, but that just sounded really awkward. Okay. Preamble. Thank you. So we've got verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So who is mentioned in this verse? Firstly, we've got Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author. He is an apostle and the person who started the Philippian church. 
He's probably the most well-known person in the Bible to all of you as he wrote most of the New, a significant portion of the New Testament. And all of the first-person pronouns in this passage refer to him. Secondly, Paul mentions Timothy, but Timothy was not a co-author with him in this message. Timothy was, however, a well-known leader, and he would have been known in Philippi, as he was probably with Paul when the church was founded in Acts 16. Paul may have mentioned Timothy to them to show that the Philippians of Timothy's care for them. Three, Paul was an apostle, and in almost every single epistle he refers to himself as such, but not in this one. In this letter, the title is absent. Commentators think that this is because of his close and affectionate relationship with the recipients of his letter, which, is, which made it unnecessary for Paul to stress his authority. This idea is backed up by the fact that the only church epistles where Paul omitted the title, the only other church epistles where Paul omitted the title were First and Second Thessalonians, and these letters were to another church with which Paul, Paul had a deep and affectionate relationship. So I'm suddenly worried that I have no, that's on. Cool. Um, lastly, Paul referred to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. This word servants could also be rendered slaves. This phrase emphasized their dependence on and submission to God. It is not a technical reference. Paul and Timothy were not literally servants or slaves, but rather this characterizes their willing service to Christ. Also, it is interesting that Paul used the term servant when he had specifically left out the term apostle. Two, who were the recipients of, in verse 1, they are the Philippian believers. Number one, we have the saints. Paul refers to the Philippian believers as saints in Christ Jesus. All believers are saints because of their spiritual union with Christ. Paul emphasizes this, in the passage where he refers to the Philippians as saints in Christ Jesus. This sainthood is not based on a believer's personal holiness, but it is rather a reflection of his or her objective status in Christ, before God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them. Also, Paul mentions the regular churchgoers, the saints, before the ministers, as ministers are for the church and not the other way around. Secondly, he mentions the overseers and the deacons. These are two offices that Paul gave for local New Testament churches, and he mentions them in 1 Timothy and Titus. Philippians is the only church where Paul mentions the church leaders in his greeting. I'm not sure why he singled them out, but it could be to endorse the leader's authority and acknowledge that organization in the church. As for all we can see, the church of Philippi was a healthy one. So... And now we have verse 2 of the passage. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why was Paul writing this book to the Philippians? Well, from the greetings, or maybe what did he want the Philippians to experience? From the greetings, we see that he wanted them to have grace and peace that came from the Father and the Son. This is a standard greeting that Paul uses in his epistles, and we see it six other times in the New Testament. Grace is favor from God, which is needed by all mankind in countless ways, and is bestowed to all mankind without regard to merit. And peace is the inner assurance and tranquility from God that gives us confidence even during turmoil. 
This blessing came equally from the Father and the Son, as Paul realized that Christ was raised up to equal authority and honor with God, and that both God the Father and the Son jointly give the blessing of grace and peace. This grace and peace comes from God through the work of Christ, which Christ did on the cross. So that's my first main point, introduction. Now my second main point is praise, because in throughout this part of Scripture, we see Paul praising God for the Philippians. And this, this praise, this thanking God for them, is magnificent. It's one of the most affectionate passages of Scripture you'll ever see. So, for whom is Paul praising God? And yes, I know I just talked about it, but we'll just we'll go over it again. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It has been shown clearly in the introduction that Paul is addressing all the believers in Philippi, the saints. Therefore the word you in this verse, and every other time the word you is seen in the text, is a reference to the Philippian believers. Every instance of you and your in the text is plural, which shows Paul is addressing a group, a group of Philippian believers. Also his use of the word all in his introductory greetings, so that he is addressing the group in its entirety. And when does Paul praise God for the Philippians? He praises God for them always. Again, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Whenever Paul thought about the Philippian believers, he thanked God for them. This is significant because his initial contact in Philippi wasn't a very nice time for him. Him and Silas were thrown into prison. It involved beatings, humiliation, and wrongful imprisonment. For most people, when they think about this, this would induce sorrow. not thankfulness. However, good came from these horrible circumstances when the jailer and his entire family found Christ, not to mention the salvation of Lydia and her family and the demon-possessed slave girl who was finally freed. The very mention of the Philippians was gracious to Paul. To him, it was a constant source of encouragement to hear of and think about his absent friends. Now point two, uh, point two, Paul thanked God in every prayer of his for the Philippians. He says in verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Even when we are praying for others, our prayers should be characterized with thanksgiving. Whenever Paul made a request to God on behalf of the Philippian believers, he couldn't help but joyously praise God for them at the same time. Paul delighted in interceding for them. Now my next point. Why does Paul praise God for the Philippians? And I think we've got this we've got this word which we see so much in the text. The word is gospel. It happens two times in this passage, it happens nine times overall in the book of Philippians. So oftentimes we use the word gospel, and we know how to use it in context, it's part of Christianese jargon, but when I was thinking about this word for studying this passage, I realized I don't really know how to define the word gospel. So, yeah, the word is, getting ahead of myself, the word is important and fundamental to this passage, and I would say to the entire book of Philippians. The Greek word, when transliterated to English, gives us the word evangel. To you, this might sound similar to the word evangelism. 
When you evangelize, you are proclaiming the evangel or the gospel. Also, the word gospel means good news. We named our church after it. Okay, it wasn't us, but yeah. Um, it is the good news of how Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection can secure eternal salvation for all men in God's kingdom. If only they trust in him. It was the proclamation of the gospel approximately ten years prior to the writing of this letter that had brought the Philippian church into existence. Another tidbit that might be interesting, the word evangel, the word for gospel, is found 77 times in the New Testament, and nine of those times are in the book of Philippians, and six of those times are in the first chapter of Philippians. A small four-chapter book gets close to 12% of the usage of this word in the entire New Testament. One could argue that the book of Philippians is the most gospel-saturated book of the New Testament. So that's part of the reason why I've labeled this sermon series the advance of the gospel. So, looking at verse 5, we see the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. In reading verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it uses the word partnership, but some of you might be using the King James Version, which uses the word fellowship. I like that word fellowship. Fellowship in the gospel just sounds amazing. Um, Sadly today, the word fellowship has been watered down in many Christian circles. We think of fellowship as talking about a week or the latest sports game, having shared lunches or dinners together, or maybe attending all of the church or denominational meetings. While all of these things are great and they can lead to true Christian fellowship, they aren't fellowship themselves. Some people I've heard go so far as to say that the word fellowship is too watered down that we should use something like communion which really, yeah, communion to really capture the deepness of this of this Greek word, koinonia. Anyway, fellowship as it is biblically defined means to have something in common or to be of one mind. True Christian fellowship goes much deeper than sharing a meal together. It can only be experienced between believers as a thing we have in common is the gospel the thing that brought us from death to life. Unless a person has trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior, he can know nothing of this fellowship. So I have a quote from the um, Warren Wearsby in his Biblical Exposition Commentary, and I'll just start the quote now. So, true Christian fellowship is much more than having a name on a church roll or being present at a meeting. It is possible to be close to people physically and miles away from them spiritually. One of the sources of Christian joy is this fellowship that believers have in Christ Jesus. Paul was in Rome. His friends were miles away in Philippi, but the spiritual fellowship was real and satisfying. When you have a single mind, you will not complain about circumstances because you know that difficult circumstances will result in strengthening of the fellowship in the gospel. So there are some ways that the Philippian believers fellowshiped with Paul and the gospel, ways that they partnered with them and participated with them. They did so financially. In Philippians 4, 14 through 18, it, go, it goes as follows. It reads as follows. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The Philippian believers financially supported Paul, at least three times during his gospel ministry. Oh, two time, at least two times during his gospel ministry, and one more time while Paul was in prison, so that he was yes, yeah, so that he will be able to continue in this ministry. This very letter was sent back with the Paphroditus after he had brought a gift to Paul, so that Paul could eat when he was in prison and, you know, not die. So the Philippian believers also fellowship with Paul spiritually. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. The Philippian believers were willing to send Epaphroditus, who was likely a leader in their church, maybe even their pastor, to encourage and serve Paul in prison. In verse 5 we also see that Paul uses the phrase the first day until now, which shows that the Philippians eagerly assisted him in the gospel from, their mom from the moment the church was started, and they had continued to do so even up until Paul wrote this letter, and I'm sure they continued to do so afterwards as well. So, there is another verse which shows the Philippians and the Philippians' partnership in the gospel that shows why Paul was thankful for them. And this comes from verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is such an encouraging verse about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is the belief that no one whom God has brought to saving faith in Jesus will ever be lost. We see this word began, and the Greek word translated as began only ever refers to salvation in the New Testament usage. God began the work in the Philippian believers' lives when he brought them to salvation in Christ, and he was going to complete that work. Paul was sure of this. To everyone here who has trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has begun a work in your life, and you will complete that work also. God not only initiates salvation, but he preserves it and guarantees its consummation. Lastly, in this verse we see the phrase, the day of Jesus Christ. It's similar to another phrase you see in the scripture called the day of the Lord but it's a little bit different. The day of the Lord describes final judgment, but the day of Jesus Christ looks to final salvation, reward, and glorification for believers, for the people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, for the people whom God will complete the work, and he will ultimately complete it on that day. And I've got another point about why Paul was praying or thanking God for the Philippian believers as they're partaking with them in grace. So I'll read from verse 7b. I'll just read a little verse 7. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the Philippian believers were partakers of Paul in grace. The grace of God had come to the Philippians through Paul's proclaiming the gospel to them. They were benefited by Paul when they accepted the gospel he communicated to them and found favor in God's eyes. So there's the word grace, which is not just a one-off thing. The Philippians continued to partake in this grace. Grace is the favor that comes from God when he brings salvation. We see in Ephesians 2, 8-9 it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. However, God's grace, God's favor doesn't just bring us to salvation, it sustains us in our salvation. It's what helps us become more and more like Jesus. So, there are a couple of ways where the Philippian believers were partakers with Paul and Grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So, while he was writing this letter, Paul was in prison in Rome, and the Philippian believers openly identified with Paul despite any danger that might have come to them because of this. I think there was a very real worry that because they were associating and fellowshipping with a prisoner that they could have come to danger themselves. But instead of denying Paul, they provided for him. And then they were also partakers with him in grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So this phrase is probably referring to Paul's upcoming legal trial in Rome where he's going to have to defend the gospel and show it to be true. It could also be in a more general sense, in the negative and positive effects of Paul's preaching ministry, but as the terms defense and confirmation are used elsewhere in scripture, they are legal terms. So commentators think it's safe to lean towards the former interpretation that this phrase was about Paul's upcoming trial that he was thinking about and pondering. So yeah, he was likely thinking about this trial where he would have to give a defense for the gospel message he had preached. He hoped he would have an occasion to give clear proofs for the truth of the gospel. Paul believed that all of Christianity was on trial with him as they, the outcome would affect all believers. And the Philippians' assistance during this time must have been a great comfort to him and shown him that they were of the same mind as him. The partakers of grace were fellowship with fellowshipping with Paul and the gospel. And my last point under praise is this. How does Paul praise God for the Philippians? And the answer is with joy. We see back in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Some people refer to Philippians as the book of joy. So yeah. It's then further on in verses 7 through 8 where we get to see some more solid examples of the joy that Paul felt for his brothers and sisters in Christ. This book, and others like it, in 1 Thessalonians, serve to correct my thinking of Paul. I often thought of him as being a bit uncaring, as someone as if he met me, probably wouldn't have the time for me, or other weak brothers in Christ. Either that, or he would just spend his time blasting people. But I couldn't read this passage and keep that view. 
Paul really, fully, and genuinely cared for the Philippians. They brought him joy. So, let's look at some examples of Paul's joy and how he praises God for the Philippians. Verse 7 again. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. How could the Philippians not have become dear to Paul, when it was through his work that they had passed from death to life? And we see this word heart. Amongst the grieving Hebrew people, this also involved the mind and the will. It refers to a person's innermost being. Paul loved the Philippians with his own soul. Then we look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a powerful statement if ever I've heard one. Only God could vouch for Paul's true feelings for his Philippian friends. This is because his feelings ran so deep. These yearnings were not merely humans, but they not merely a human desire to be with his friends, but they were divine in nature. They were prompted by the affection of Christ Jesus. Now I found it really interesting when I was looking at the word affection um, yesterday. Like I was actually, early this morning, I was reading through a commentary, and it was just funny. Like this commentary came from I think the 1600s, and their version of this said um, the word bowels instead of affection. It was just very funny. So it may seem funny, but the bowels, your gut. It's a part of the body that physically reacts to intense emotion. Have you ever heard the phrase that you had a sinking feeling in your gut? Like there's something worrying you, but you physically feel it. Or have you ever been so anxious that you can't eat? Or have you ever had butterflies in your stomach at the thought of someone with whom you're romantically interested? <laughs> our deep feelings affect our internal organs. This word became the strongest Greek word to describe passionate affections. Love that encompasses one's entire being. This love was brought about by Christ in the life of Paul. So looking at verse 3 through 8, I was thinking how could we apply this? And I think the best way that we can apply this passage today is one, follow the example of Paul, and two, follow the example of the Philippian believers. So the example of Paul, do you have anyone for whom you thank God for every time you remember them? When you pray for other believers, do you find yourself overflowing with praise for them? When you are separated from fellow believers, do you yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus? I know that far too often I don't. It's an area where I need to grow. Paul had many people for whom he prayed and thanked God. And I think he shows us an amazing example of what it means to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who can we thank God for today? Number two, we can follow the example of the Philippians. Is the care and encouragement that we give to our missionaries so full, so complete, that it could be considered fellowship in the gospel? Are we willing to give up our leaders to go and fulfill our missionaries' every need? I actually find this quite funny that as I am preaching on this passage at this very moment, our pastor, Scott, is going and helping our missionaries teach other leaders 
to better serve their churches, to teaching their leaders to train other leaders. So yeah, he's helping John and Rosemary over in Vanuatu. And while I was thinking of this, I asked Scott to let John and Rosemary know how grateful we here at Good News Baptist are for the work they are doing and how grateful we are that we can fellowship with them in the gospel. It can be easy to just give missionaries money, like the church gives them monthly donations and us as the church members can just forget about it, but I don't think that what, that's what God wants from us. I think God wants us to truly partner with them, like the Philippians did with Paul. So we're up to my third main point, which is prayer, from verses 9 through 11. Paul has finished thanking Paul has finished his period of thanks when he was talking about how much he thanks God for the Philippians and how how much they bring him joy. And now he comes to his prayer. So he let the Philippian believers know the contents of his prayer when he was praying for them by in this letter praying for them. So my first question about prayer is for what did Paul ask? The thing that he asks is that their love may abound more and more. Let's look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Abounding love is the basic petition of Paul for his readers. When I was reading this passage, I, I found it quite interesting to realize that this is the only thing that Paul asks for. Everything else in this prayer is either a qualification of this love or a flow and effect of the love. So let's define the word love. The word love in this passage is agape. And I've got another quote from the New Bible Dictionary that I thought was really helpful in explaining this to us. The commonest Greek word in the New Testament for all forms of love is agape which is the noun, or agapeo, which is the verb. They mean pretty much the same thing, just one's a noun, the other's a verb. This is one of the least frequent words used in classical Greek, where it expresses, on the few occasions it occurs, the highest and noblest form of love, which sees something infinitely precious in the object of that love. And... Most of the time in the New Testament when Paul command, uh, when God commands believers to love, it is either agape or agapeo. This is the type of love that Jesus speaks of when he gave the two greatest commandments in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first Sorry, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This love is the fruit of the Spirit. We see in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness. Sorry, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And this love enables all other spiritual disciplines to be exercised properly. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is important that Paul is praying for love in the lives of the Philippians, as love is given by God. It's divinely enabled. So another thing I was thinking about is love needs an object. You can't love without having something or someone to love. So who is the object? Who is Paul asking the Philippians to love? There doesn't seem to be any reason to limit the love in this instance exclusively to being for God, for Paul, or each other. I think it's all three. It is most likely an unrestricted God. Oh, Paul wanted, and God wanted, most likely an unrestricted, continued demonstration of the spiritual fruit in all of the Philippians' ways of life. The Philippian believers were already expressing this love. You can't read the previous verse without seeing that to be true. But Paul wanted to see an overabundance of love in their lives. Love for God, love for Paul, and especially love for each other. So how should this love be expressed? We'll look at the second half of verse 9. It says, with knowledge and all discernment. So the word for knowledge describes a genuine, full, or complete knowledge. For love to be biblical, it must be anchored in and regulated by the truths found in Scripture. If love is not grounded in biblical knowledge, it is mere sentiment, sentiment and not true agape. In another word we see is discernment, which speaks of moral perfection and insight. This is the practical application of knowledge. Some, someone who is discerning can judge well between what is right and wrong. Love is not blind. Love is perceptive. So I've got an example from a friend of mine who I think this example just really illustrates how he learned to love in a way that is discerning. So this friend of mine, who I will call Ethan, because that's his name, he met with someone who asked him for money. And though dubious about this person's motive, he, motives, he opened his wallet and gave the person a note from his wallet after the person saw it and asked for it. I think it was a $10 note. I didn't quite clarify that with Ethan. Um, not long after the exchange, my friend later saw this per- the same person walking into a liquor store. And he realized that he hadn't been discerning in his love. So however, he took this to heart and later asked his father for some advice on how to be both discerning and loving. And the advice he got was, whenever someone asks for money, to ask them what they need it for and then offer to pay for that directly. I think this does a great job at showing why and how our love should be discerning. So what are the effects of this love? This is my last sub-point, with four sub-sub-points. And I believe that God wanted, yeah, the effects of this love was that the Philippians may have these four flow-on, yeah, sorry, I'll just get into it that the Philippians may, one, approve what is excellent, as we see in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. So this phrase comes right after the context of a knowledgeable and discerning love that we see in the previous verse. We've got the word approve, which in classical Greek describes the analysis of metals or the testing of money for its authenticity. And we've got the word excellent, which means to differ, knowing the difference between what is good and what is best. 
Not all things are black and white. Not all things are good and bad. Sometimes believers must decide what is good between what is good and what is best. The ability to distinguish is important in order to have the right priorities. The next thing we see in verse 10 reads like this, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So there's this word pure, which means genuine, sincere, tested by sunlight, which is a kind of interesting phrase. But in ancient Rome, dishonors potters filled cracked pots with wax before glazing and painting them, which made inferior pots hard to tell from the expensive ones. And this was problematic, as if something hot was put in this pot, the wax would melt, and the pot would be completely ruined. However, when one of these pots was held up to the sunlight, the wax-filled cracks could be seen as they were darker than the pottery. Sorry. Um, Dealers marked their fine pottery that could withstand the test of the sun as sincere or without wax. The usage in the New Testament points to ethical and moral purity when believers' lives are tested by sunlight, or perhaps the light of Scripture. And then we've got the word blameless, which means without offense, relational integrity. Believers are to live a lives of true integrity that don't cause others to sin. And then once again we see this phrase, the day of Christ, because we are to be pure, the Philippian believers were to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Every believer will one day stand before Jesus and give an account of his work and deeds. Again, this is not with respect to punishment and judgment, but rather reward. God will reward our good works, and our fruitless works will be burnt up. This idea is sobering, and I think it was intended to have a purifying effect on the believer's life. This knowledge of reward will lead us to holiness. Now in verse 11 we see the phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is my third sub-point. To be righteous is to be acceptable to God in every way and attaining such a state is to be a lifelong pursuit. Transformed lives, transformed lives demonstrate God's work in believers. And so we've got the word fruit, which is metaphorical fruits. That's actually the righteous acts of believers. The fruit is the result of righteous action. And this fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus, which speaks of the transformation that comes from Jesus at salvation and his ongoing work in our lives today through the Holy Spirit. And my last sub-point today is like, is this. When our love is abounding, when all these things are happening, God is glorified. I'm not exactly sure how this goes in Greek, but when you look at the prayer, Paul's prayer in English, it appears sequential. One thing leads to the next, and when all these things come together, God is glorified. When a love tempered by knowledge and discernment is abounding, when believers are approving what is excellent, when they are pure and blameless for the day of Christ, when they are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus, when all these things are happening, when they are all progressing, God is glorified. The praise, glory, and honor of God was Paul's ultimate goal in his prayer for the Philippian believers. So by way of application, I'm just going to take all these things I said and restate them as questions. And I'll try to be fast. Um, realize I'll go this long. Um, okay, number one, is love abounding in your lives? 
If any of these questions stick out to you, write them down. Maybe just pick one or two because these are a lot of questions. Is love abounding in your lives? If people from the world looked at you, would they see a love for God and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Number two, is your love tempered with knowledge and discernment? Are you judging rightly about how how you should love and for whom it is directed? Is the truth of Scripture informing how you love? Number three, are you approving what is excellent? Are you able to see the difference between what is good and what is great? Number four, are you pure and blameless? When you hold your life up against the light of Scripture, what do you see? Are you living a life of relational integrity? Number five, are you filled with the fruit of righteousness? Are you making progress in sanctification and being acceptable, found acceptable to God in every way? And number six, in all that you say and do, is God glorified? So I know I asked a lot of questions. I know that no one here can answer yes to every single one of those. When I look at my life, I know that I can't answer yes to a feels like all of them. Anyway, thankfully, in one sense, it's not up to us because the God who saved us, who began this good work in us, will complete this work. We can ask him to supernaturally help us do these things. So, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, why don't you pick from the many questions that I ask the one that stood out the most to you and ask God to help you bring it about over this coming week. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for the fantastic examples yet that you have provided for us in Scripture. Thank you for the example of Paul and the Philippians, of how we should treat each other, of how we should partnership in the Gospel, of how we should be joyful and thankful to God for each other. Thank you, God, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that we can partnership with each other in the Gospel. And God, I pray for all of us, for everyone here, that our love may, would abound, that we would be known as people who desperately and passionately love God and each other. And I pray that as a, resulting, as a result of that love, that you would ultimately be glorified. I ask that in your name, Father. Amen.